0: His faith was put to the ultimate test during the Battle of Mogadishu, Somalia, back in 1993. Coming up tonight, how this retired Army Ranger is helping folks face their fear and overcome them through faith in God. There is the word. There is the way. And brothers and sisters who find strength in their belief. We meet Faces of Faith with Phil Scoggins. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Faces of Faith. I'm your host, Phil Scoggins, and it is my honor and pleasure to introduce you to a friend of mine tonight who has uh, indulged me to come and be on my podcast. Jeff Struker is a retired Army Ranger, a local pastor, and he's going to be sharing his incredible story with us tonight. And Jeff... Again, on behalf of us here at WRBO, thanks for being in our podcast studio tonight, and I look forward to this next hour of conversation.
1: It's always great to be with you, Phil. The,
0: the time that we met, as I recall, I had listened to you bring your testimony to us at Evangel Temple. That's where I attend, and, and it had to have been 15, maybe between 15 and 20 years ago. And after the service, I remember coming up to you and uh, introducing myself and saying, uh, Jeff, I would love to do a story about what I just heard. And uh, quite a bit of time went by, and I didn't hear back from you. And when I did, you you let me know, hey, I vet those people that ask me for interviews. I want to know something, you know, about who is wanting to talk to me about my faith. But you uh, you granted me that interview, and I'm, I'm very proud of the story that I was able to, to put on the air. But um, do you recall uh, that night, maybe 15, 20 years ago?
1: Oh, yeah, I remember it well. I think we recorded that thing on Fort Benning in one of the chapels, and uh, you are somebody who I felt like I could trust to tell you the whole story, the story behind the story. Well, I know editing can be tricky, and, and when you you know put your
0: faith out there, depending upon how a story gets edited, things you know can maybe not come across exactly the way that you would like, but... Uh, you did a remarkable job on that story, and it's hard to compress, And as people will hear over the next hour, your life into a short television story. So we get to breathe. We get to let this story have legs tonight, and I look forward to what we're going to talk about. First of all, let's give folks uh, a good idea of your background. Where, where's your hometown? How long have you been in Columbus? Just a little bit about your growing up years.
1: Yeah, this is a hard question for me to answer because I typically tell people when I'm traveling, Columbus is home for me. Um, but that's not actually true. I, have, I moved here at 18 years old, um, spent almost all of an Army career here. And when it came time to retire from the U.S. Army, my wife and I just decided we love this place so much we don't want to leave. Now, I should say that the Army brought me here right after graduating from high school at 18, but before moving to Columbus, I moved more than 20 times in 18 years. I went to four high schools in three uh, states and never really had a place that felt like home. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was kind of unusual, not kind of, it was extremely unusual that the Army brought me here at 18 and I spent 10 years straight here. Moved around a a couple of times in the Army and then kept asking them to send me back and finished my career here.
0: Let's talk about your faith journey. Uh, um, What impressed you to give your heart to the Lord? When did that happen and and how did that happen?
1: Yeah, this is a one-night event. Uh, Obviously, God had been working in my heart to prepare me for this night, but— Um, to give you a little backstory, my parents divorced when I was young. I lived with my mother. The reason I moved so much is because my mother literally moved every time there was another job opportunity. And that sometimes was two or three times in one school year. So we had just moved to a suburbs outside of Nashville, Tennessee. I didn't grow up in a church home. And we moved into an Uh, apartment complex and there was a young couple brand newly married that moved in directly across the hall from us in this apartment complex. They started to treat me like a little brother. They always wanted to hang out. They invited me to come over to their apartment and they were just kind of friendly to me. After a few weeks of getting to know this couple, one night they came over to my apartment. I remember it very vividly because it was kind of late at night. I thought, why are they coming to see me? Um, and they sat down at my dining room table and they said, Jeff, can we talk? And they, they were nervous, like from the moment that they walked in the door, they were very, um, they were acting kind of weird. And I, I thought to myself, something's wrong. So they started explaining the gospel to me for the first time in my life. Cause I didn't grow up in church. So nobody really ever talked to me about what this couple was saying to me. They explained to me about sin They talked to me about Jesus and my need for a Savior. And then they just kind of, as clearly as I've ever heard anybody say it, they described for me how to turn your life over to Christ, what happens after you surrender to Jesus Christ. But, Phil, I love to tell audiences, they were so nervous at this point, I'm not exaggerating, that they just kind of left it there and ran out of the house and ran (laughs) next door. And later on that night, I was in my bed, 13 years old, a freshman in high school in Gallatin, Tennessee, and I thought about what, that, what I had just heard. It all made sense to me. I got out of my bed. I knelt down, and I don't even remember the words that I said, but I just honestly, sincerely said, God, I'm a sinner, and I need you. And um, there was no doubt in my mind that he did something miraculous in my heart. In fact, the next day when I went to school, at, after getting off the school bus, instead of going to my apartment um, and going home, I went over to their apartment, knocked on their door and said, hey, I did what you guys talked about last night and something's different inside my heart. What do I do next? And they just kind of took me under their wing and started to teach me how to live for Jesus.
0: Wow. That's a remarkable. So you were 13. Yeah. Between 13 and 18... Uh, You came to a decision about enlisting in the Army. Who helped you make that decision and formulate that that was an option for you when when you turned 18?
1: Um, The biggest influencer was a high school friend of mine by the name of Tony. I didn't come from a military family. Nobody was really pushing me towards the military. Nobody really talked about the military in my house. Mm -hmm. And my buddy Tony, just on a whim, while we were seniors in high school, said, hey, I just joined the Army. Uh, I just signed up. You should sign up too. So uh, I I had never even thought about it before Tony had, uh, you know, came and talked to me and said, I already signed up. Uh here's a fun fact. I learned this after the fact. He was just trying to get more rank by getting his high school buddies to sign up. So he just kind of twisted my arm and and told me to go see a recruiter. <laughs> but what landed me in the Army Phil, because I, I just showed up and and had no real interest in him. And I, I go to a recruiter's office while I'm still in high school and I ask the recruiter, what's the toughest job in the Army? And this recruiter was totally candid with me, didn't want me to make a mistake. So he said, look, kid, I don't think you know what you're asking for. The toughest job in the Army are the Airborne Rangers, and I don't want you to get in over your head. So you go home and watch this documentary. And it's an expose, a 2020 expose on Ranger School. You watch this documentary before we have another conversation. And uh, I took it home. I watched it, and in five minutes I was hooked. I thought, that's if it 's really that hard, I want to see if i 've got what it takes to make it i'm uh, sign me up,
0: and clearly, the path that was unfolding before you um, challenged you physically, mentally, emotionally. How did you prepare to become an army Ranger?
1: Yeah, it challenged me in ways that i couldn 't even i didn't even uh imagine um So my recruiter basically did everything. Now, he didn't have ranger experience, so he really couldn't speak from personal Mm -hmm. example. He just kind of did everything he could to help me get prepared. I was still a senior in high school. I enlisted in what's called the delayed entry program. And then right after graduating, I went to basic training here at Fort Benning. Um, My recruiter told me how this will go. We're going to send you to basic training. We're going to send you to airborne school. And while you're in the Army's airborne course here in Fort Benning, the ranger regiment recruiters will come by and they're going to ask you to volunteer for the ranger regiment. And then if you just volunteer, they take care of everything else Mm -hmm. after that. And that's kind of what he told me. And (laughs) he did not uh, disappoint. He, he didn't uh, mislead me at all. You not only became an army
0: ranger, you became the best ranger. You, the the competition is about to unfold on out Mm -hmm. at Fort Benning uh, during the month of April. But uh, describe that experience for us as, as to what is required to become the best ranger.
1: Yeah, that, um, well, I, I guess the decision that led up to me even attempting the best ranger competition all dates back several years earlier. So I'm in the army, I'm in the ranger regiment. I find myself surrounded by guys that are far smarter, much stronger, much faster than me. And every day that I wake up, I'm inspired by these guys and I just don't want to disappoint them. Mm -hmm. So I get up, I go to work and I give it everything that I've got every moment that I'm at work because of the guys that I had the chance to work with. And one of my bosses early on in the Army, uh, early on in the Ranger Regiment, was a sergeant by the name of Joe Ulibarri. Ulibarri was an incredibly fit athlete, and he took uh, his team, that uh, this reconnaissance team from the Ranger Regiment that I was on. Eulaberry was my team leader, and he regularly... Uh, moved us over very long distances, uh, you know, to the point that most Rangers would never expect to, you know, be asked to do that kind of stuff. So one day, Joe Euliberry and this small team that I was on, we were running probably 15, 18 miles one morning and Euliberry looks over at me and he says, Hey Jeff, you should consider doing best Ranger one day. And I was like, Hey, I'm not big enough. I'm not strong enough for that competition. And Euliberry said, look at me, I'm smaller than you. I'm not, uh, as strong as you, I competed in and I won the best ranger competition. And I'm telling you, Jeff, you ought to think about doing this. So for years passed after that little conversation, early one morning, uh, down a, a training tr- a trail, uh, across Fort Benning. And I couldn't get his comment out of my mind. And 1993, um, uh, a good friend of mine we were in the same company together and both of us said, I, I don't even know if we have what it takes to enter it a little alone to make it, but let's give it a try. And Aaron Weaver and I competed together in 1994 90, and 90, 94 and 95. We finished in fourth place. Both of those years, he left the army in 1996 and I competed with a different uh, partner and in 1996, Isaac Gamazal and I won the Best Ranger competition. But it is not an exaggeration to say I probably spent about four years of my life, every moment that I wasn't at work, training for Best Ranger. Describe for folks who um,
0: maybe have heard of it but don't understand the grueling experience that Best Ranger competition is.
1: Yeah, It is typically considered one of the world's most difficult endurance competitions, usually ranks in the top three to five in the world. It's uh, usually about 60 to 72 hours long. It's at least 60 hours long, sometimes up to 72 hours long. There's no sleep programmed in this competition. You keep moving and don't stop for the entire three days. And food is strictly controlled um, so that every person that's competing is basically competing with the exact same resources, same amount of sleep none same amount of food just a little bit and teams will usually cover it's a two man team competition and they will usually cover somewhere around a hundred miles on their feet, running carrying heavy distances navigating over long uh terrain or over terrain along with somewhere around thirty to fifty very intense or very technical military events that are spread throughout. So, yeah, it's uh, the average competition, more than half of the teams that start, and these are some of the most fit athletes in the Army. More than half of them don't finish it. Wow.
0: What did that do for you internally to know that you, you had what it took to become the best of the best?
1: Um. Well, two things, and I'll share with you something that I don't talk about very often. Um, Best Ranger winners can develop superstar status in the military, and they don't do that personally. It's just the amount of respect that goes along with winning the Best Ranger competition. I really didn't want that kind of attention, those kind of accolades, so I had a personal policy, Phil, this will interest you, up to the up to 1996 that I refused to do interviews had been to combat multiple times, never did a a radio or television interview period. Um, And then in 1996, I kind of made a personal commitment to the Lord. I'm a very committed Christian. And I just said, God, I don't know if I'm going to win, if we're going to lose, if I'm going to fail and not even complete this, but whatever opportunities are placed in front of me this year, I will try to use media opportunities as a chance to talk about my faith. First thing. Second thing is I started to realize best Ranger because I've spent every waking minute thinking about it and training for it. Even when I'm not at work, it started to take on a bit of an idle status to me. And I kind of just said, Lord, this is my last year. If I keep doing this, it's got way too much of my heart. And it's not healthy for me spiritually to keep devoting this much of myself to something that, um, you know, it's temporary. So whatever happens this year, 1996, I'm just going to, I'm going to leave it at that. And sure enough, 1996, I win with Isaac Amazel and there is unprecedented media interviews And I've never really heard God's voice, but I kind of felt him in the back of my head saying, all right, buddy, you made a promise. Now it's time to do, to be, to to fulfill that promise. And,
0: and I'm sure the interviews came like an avalanche. Yeah,
1: they did. Um. I, I, in fact, I remember, um, the guys who ran the competition saying right before it started this year, the winners will go on world tour. And, and I was like, oh no, this is going to be the year that I win. And now I'm going to have to make good on that promise. We're going to back up. That was 1996.
0: We're going to go back to 93. Uh, you were a Sergeant, uh, in the 75th Ranger Regiment. And there was a battle that took place in Mogadishu, Somalia. And that had a lot to do with the direction of your career after that battle. So paint the picture of what set up the mission that you and your fellow comrades were facing going into Somalia.
1: Yeah, Um, The movie Black Hawk Down... Um, By the way, lots of people will ask the question, is it accurate? Yes, it's very accurate. It's just not nearly as violent as the real thing. But the movie Black Hawk Down spends about the first two minutes with text rolling across the screen trying to explain to the audience what you're about to see. And really what it's doing is giving you um, global geopolitics in about two minutes. And there's no way that that kind of detail can help set you up. So lots of people are asking, how do we go as a country, the United States, from handing out food to people that are starving to death to helicopters shot down and Humvees on fire? And um, the, the background here is that you have a country that's kind of in the middle of nowhere on the Horn of Africa that really um, politically doesn't have a lot of influence worldwide. But there's a famine that's affecting the whole region. By 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 the by the December of 1992, there are several hundred thousand, somewhere in the neighborhood of three to five hundred thousand people that have starved to death in Somalia. And so the United States and the United Nations began this operation as a humanitarian mission. The U.S. Marines landed on the beaches December of 1992 and started to provide food for a starving country. The country didn't have a functioning government there was no real military there's no police force and the people that had the most power in the country were really controlling the country with drugs and guns sell a drug a local drug that would make money take the money buy guns and whoever has the most guns incidentally can control the food and if you control the food you control everything So one of those warlords in Mogadishu, Somalia, was a guy by the name of Muhammad Farah Aidid. Aidid in 1993, early 93, started to target United Nations workers. He started to attack U.S. supply convoys. This is a humanitarian operation. And then in June of 93, he ambushed and murdered 24 Pakistani United Nations workers which immediately prompted the UN Security Council to meet together and the Security Council said okay we have to do something about IDED and the US's response was send task force ranger to Somalia to kill or capture ID and the high ranking leadership from his clan and so my unit and a couple of other special operations units we go to Somalia for the express mission of kill or capture this guy and take down his network and that's what brought us there in the first place
0: that uh, battle lasted
1: how long? Well, we were supposed to be in the country for six weeks. We're about three months in. We still haven't found ID. There's still some really high-ranking leaders of his organization, and we're getting lots of pressure from Washington, D.C. to get out of there Mm -hmm. when we launched the operation on October 3rd and 4th that become known as Black Hawk Down. And that fight lasted for 18 hours. And the next morning, roughly half of us were killed or wounded.
0: Describe your uh, personal mission, what you were ordered to do, and the battle that went on in your mind as you were contemplating uh, losing your life to accomplish your mission. Yeah.
1: Um, I'd like everybody who's listening to this to know this isn't my first rodeo. By 1993, I'd already been with the Rangers in the invasion of Panama, 89. I'd already gone with the Rangers to Kuwait as part of Desert Storm, 91. So I've been in firefights. I've seen blood. I've seen killing, but nothing to the extent that we saw in Somalia. It was unlike anything that I've ever seen, even the many times to Iraq and Afghanistan afterwards. My job was, uh, I was a squad leader, um, and my platoon had a vehicle mission. Most of the rest of the men that went in on targets, all of the missions that we did in Somalia, most of them went in by helicopter. When the helicopters went in, we would send a a small group of platoons to, or uh, vehicles to, provide some security but ultimately to grab all of the bad guys and then everybody who flies in by helicopter run to the humvees jump on the humvees and get out of there as fast as possible which was kind of the plan for the battle of black hawk down Um, in my case i was usually my squad was usually the first two humvees in the city streets which means we took a lot of gunfire And on October 3rd and 4th, as soon as we got to the Target building, I was already getting a call from my commander, Colonel Danny McKnight, saying, Jeff, we've got a seriously wounded Ranger. He fell off of the Blackhawks, missed the fast rope. He's unconscious, and I don't know if he's going to make it. I need you to get your squad and take him back to the base and get him medical attention. And as we were loading Blackburn up, Todd Blackburn, this Ranger that fell from the helicopter and as we were driving him back to the base i went through this intense gunfight where i thought literally everybody's going to die most of the gunfight was point-blank range by dozens or hundreds of enemy fighters and one of the guys that was sitting right next to me in the humvee was shot and killed instantly so when i get back to the base uh now i've got one guy who's killed in action we've got the vehicles are shot to pieces I've got a guy who's wounded in the Humvees behind me. And I thought to myself, I, I can't believe that we just survived that. And upon getting back and, and dropping off our casualties, I learned that two Blackhawks have been shot down. We put our search and rescue force in at the first crash site. The second helicopters crash now, nobody else that we can put out there. So Jeff, get back on your Humvees and go back out in the city streets. And when I'm speaking to audiences, I will tell them this is the most terrifying moments of my life, hands down, because from that moment forward, the rest of the night, I'm absolutely convinced I'm going to die. And not just me, but as a leader, I'm every one of my men are going to die in the next few minutes. And this is where my faith, Phil, makes all the difference. Because I'm standing at the back of the Humvee, it's covered in blood from one of my men that's just been killed. I'm 100% certain that I'm going to die. And by the way, married my high school sweetheart, we've been trying to have a baby for a couple of years. And I got a letter in the mail over in Somalia saying that she was pregnant with our first child. And everything that a soldier thinks about is going through my mind, getting ready to go back in the city streets. And I just simply had a moment where I I came before God. Now, I'm I'm busy, so I didn't stop what I'm doing. I didn't bow my knees or bow or bow my head or close my eyes. But I'm I start praying at the back of this Humvee, and and my prayer was basically, God, I know I'm going to die, and I'm scared right now, and I need your help. And this moment, my Christian faith really, uh, steps in and it takes over. Like there's no amount of military training that you can do to prepare a guy for this. Um, so I'm at the back of this Humvee. I'm certain without a shadow of a doubt that I'm going to die. I'm convinced my wife is going to be a widow. My child will never even know who their father is. And I'm a leader I'm about to get all the rest of my men killed. I've already had one of them killed right underneath me. And now the rest of them are going to die. And I just start to think about what I said I believed at 13 years old. And I'm just a simple guy, Phil. So it kind of boils down in my mind. I'm at the back of this Humvee and it just becomes really clear to me and really simple. Not easy, but very simple to understand. Jeff, this is only going to go one of two ways. And it's probably not going to work out good for you, but maybe you survive. Maybe God does a miracle and you're able to go back home to your family. Maybe he does not Maybe tonight's the night that you meet God in person. But Jeff, what happened to you at 13 years old was real. And I really felt this in my soul in a way that I can't describe I felt like before my body hits the ground, I know where I'm going to spend eternity. I know my soul will be with my father in heaven. So from this point forward, I've got nothing to fear. And I don't have the words. I I literally don't know the words to use to describe to your listeners what happens next, because I experienced this supernatural sense of peace that I've, I i do not think I've, I've really ever had this kind of peace, even laying in my own bed, but I just have this moment of peace wash over me where I realize I am going to die. No question. And I know where I'm going to spend eternity. So I'm not, I'm not worried. And this moment of peace lasts literally all night long until nine o'clock the next morning until the battle's over with. And I am totally at peace with the idea that tonight is the night that I'm going to meet my savior face to face. And, um, I, uh, the most pivotal moment in my military career happens to me after the battle's over with. Cause I love being a Ranger. I thought, God, you made me really good at this. I'm going to just keep being a Ranger Sergeant until they kick me out of the army. <laughs> this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And then the next morning, and I still remember this like it was yesterday, as soon as I arrived back at the base, first, I'm absolutely blown away that I'm still alive. But when I get back to the base, my buddies are waiting for me and they're waiting to talk to me. And most of them say statements like, Jeff, I watched you in the city streets last night. I heard your voice over the radio. And when everybody else was terrified, you were perfectly calm how is that even possible? Cause you and I have the same kind of training and I was not calm and you were. And many of my buddies said, Jeff, I know you have something that I don't have and whatever it is, I want it. And that day I had the chance to talk to my friends about Jesus who would never even hear it before this, but now they're saying, I want you to tell me what's the difference. And there has never been a moment in my life where I've heard an audible voice from God, but this was as clear as anything that I've ever heard in my life. I just felt God saying, Jeff, I want you to do something different with your life than kick in doors and kill bad guys. That's important. But the conversations that you're having with these guys right now, that matters for eternity. And that's what ultimately set me on the path to become an army chaplain and then now a pastor here in Columbus. Oh, wow. (laughs)
0: <laughs> what I uh when I watched the movie Black Hawk Down um it made me sick. It was it was so real and so powerful that uh I had trouble going to sleep that night. Uh and I'm sitting here across from someone who not only lived it. I mean the 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 movie was based on what you experienced. Did you feel uh that next morning that, um, you, you had God's calling?
1: Yeah, I don't, I didn't understand what, what this feeling was inside my soul. So i started, I I refer to it today. I didn't know what this was at the time that I started to wrestle with God about this. Like, Mm -hmm. God, I'm not sure you got the right guy. I'm really good at being a ranger. I don't have any college or any ministry experience. Why would you want me to do this? Um, but I I just felt like the, I felt the Lord impressing on me and he wouldn't let it go, which started me on the path, stayed in the army, in the Ranger Regiment. I did an undergraduate degree here at Troy University and then eventually went to seminary and became an army chaplain. But it took me a little while of wrestling with God over this one because I just felt like a little bit like Moses, like, God, you got the wrong guy. Surely there's somebody better than me for this.
0: You wrote a book called road to unafraid that was based on your experience in Mogadishu share, uh, what you hope that you experienced and learned personally in that battle, how that can help people that might be listening to this podcast.
1: Well, the title of the book says it all. And what the publishers said is, Jeff, we, we really want your story to speak to men. We want your story to speak to strong men, tough men, the kind of men who don't like to admit that they're afraid, but we all know they are. And we think you've got some street cred that you could speak to those guys. So I wrote the book with about 13 chapters And, um, the first 10 or 11 chapters are just me laying out my story and laying out moments along the way where I was terrified and not afraid to admit that I was terrified. I'm, I've got all the training and all of the experience that, that should help you get over fear, but some fears you just have to face, um, you know, uh, head on. And I wanted guys to hear, it's okay to admit you're afraid, but the last chapter I I wrote the whole book just for the last chapter. So I'll give you the, um, you know, the inside scoop. If you get the book, just skip to the last <laughs> chapter and you can skip all the rest of the stuff because the last chapter says, now let me tell you how to get over your fear. And that's why the title of the book is the road to unafraid. And I contend that my argument is many people think Courage is the opposite of fear. I'm afraid, but this guy's courageous. He's the opposite of fear. And I say, no, that's not the opposite of fear. Actually, faith is the opposite of fear because fear is all based around the unknown. Like, I don't know what's going to happen next. I'm afraid it might turn out this way. And courage is only possible with real fear in the face of real fear. Only can you have courage. But faith is the antidote. It's the opposite of fear. It's saying, I don't know how it's going to turn out, but I'm, I have no reason to worry because I know that there is someone in heaven who is bigger than my problems, who's got me in the palm of his hand, and he will take care of everything in the long run. And that is the answer to life's greatest fears. Um, and I, by God's grace, still get the chance to talk to a lot of men, and that's, Essentially, if you were to boil my message down, that's my message. Jesus Christ is the answer to, war, to your greatest fears.
0: Would you talk us uh, through your uh, pathway from not only the chaplaincy, but then leaving the Army and becoming a pastor?
1: Yeah, for me, I really loved the Army. I loved being in the Army. Um, warriors are my heroes, and I wanted to spend the rest of my life around them. So when I started to get to the point where I was thinking about retiring, first, my wife, who is a very wise woman. She said, her name's Jeff, Dawn. Yeah, her name's Dawn. She said, Jeff, don't retire from the Army until you can honestly say you've done everything you wanted to do. Don't be the guy who looks back and, you know, wishes that the, that he would have had the chance to do this, you know. Uh, or do that. So she, I mean, she was really wise in that statement. And I finally got to the point where I could look at myself in the mirror and say, that's it. I've I've really, God has given me the chance to do everything that I wanted to do in the army. So then Dawn and I started talking about, well, where do we go? Because the army has told us for the last 23 years where we're going to live. Now it's our turn to figure out where we want to live. And I said to her, Hey, look, you've been following me around for a long time. We've been going wherever the army sends us. Where do you want to spend the rest of your life? And I had my fingers crossed (laughs) behind my back because I was thinking, I hope she says here, I don't want (laughs) to leave here. I want to spend the rest of my life here. And her answer was, Jeff, we've brought our children into the world here. We've raised them here. We have lifelong friends here. Why would we leave here? Let's just spend the rest of our life in Columbus. And I was thinking, yes, that's exactly what I wanted to hear you say. Because I want to pour my life into warriors and into their families and I think one of the things that makes this community special is the incredible men and women that serve our country. They either pass through this community or they decide to plant roots here. And in either case, I thought, I want to spend the rest of my life around these guys and gals. You became a um, pastor at Calvary Baptist Church. Mm-hmm. Was that your first pastor? That's right. Yeah. I retired from the army on Sunday and started there on Monday. But you had been
0: attending there for how long?
1: For years, probably three or five years before uh, starting on staff there. Okay, so you shift from um,
0: the Army Ranger cap to uh, the, the, the robe and in the, in, in the, the position of minister. How difficult the transition?
1: Uh, if you would have asked me that question right before I retired, Phil, I would have said, oh, it's not going to be any challenge at all but I was in for a rude awakening after retiring from the army. I started realizing, wow, I really miss it. Um, and there are some days that I still miss it. And I've been retired now for 10 years. Um, and I still miss the urgency and the camaraderie and even some of the action and the adrenaline that I had in the army. But I also realized I'm an old man now and couldn't keep up with those young bucks anyway. Um, but just being around Fort Benning, being around these warriors, it's it's still a dream come true. Um, I kid people and tell them that the Army really was kind of a mistress to me while I was um, in the military. And now it's like being around an old girlfriend all the time. You still get a chance to see her, but I'm not married to her. So, <laughs> so you stayed at Calvary for how long? Uh, about eight years.
0: And you transitioned from there to... Another opportunity in the ministry, tell me about the difficulty of planting a new church during a pandemic.
1: Yes. So a handful of people and I came together in the summer of 2019, and we started just praying about this community. And all of us universally said, we love this community. There's something special about this community. We also said the Chattahoochee Valley is incredibly multi-ethnic. It is very global. If you look at the amount of people from around the world that live here, and then the warriors that are trained here that go around the world, this is like the, a, a giant revolving door. And we just felt like you could reach the whole world by reaching this community. So we started praying for this community in 2019, this summer, and then we we felt God calling us to start a church service in January of 2020 and we began in the Cunningham Center on the campus of CSU here in Columbus Georgia at the on the last Sunday in January and on the first Sunday in March 6 weeks later CSU was saying hey you guys can't meet here anymore because of covid mm. we're going to have to cl- we're going to have to close the doors and we spent a good portion of last year online only um as you said uh, a brand new church with you know a- almost barely getting our feet underneath us when COVID happened. Um, But God's been gracious to us, and we're still going strong. And, in fact, we're now trying to uh, reach as many people in our community and around the world as we can, and we've just embraced being a church that is both in person, still Mm -hmm. at the Cunningham Center on CSU and online.
0: One of the things that all of us faced uh, in the face of— coronavirus and COVID-19 was fear, fear of the unknown, fear of of how long, fear of um, relatives that maybe had compromised health issues. Um, how did you draw on your battle with fear to help uh, instruct and, and inspire
1: those that were listening to you on Sunday? Great question. Um, There were a couple of times I looked myself in the mirror, didn't want to say this in front of anybody else and said, this is insane having a brand new church in the middle of a global pandemic. But then I kind of reminded myself, well, everybody in the world is going through this. And if you're the pastor of a very established church, you have a lot of demands on you and a lot of pressure. In your case, Jeff, it's brand new. So you can just be very flexible, very agile. And if you got to make some big changes, you can make them. Um, But Phil, I want to be honest with you. There were a few times when people were really concerned about their health and safety that I had to slow down and I had to remind myself to think about this from their perspective. Because in my mind, I was thinking, oh, I settled death back in 1993. Mm -hmm. Actually, I settled it when I was 13 years old. So if I get the virus and this thing kills me, I'm all right with that. Um, But I realized you may not be all right with that. You may not be, you know, you may not have come to that. Uh, come to peace with that yet. So let me help you feel comfortable with um, not death, but let me help you. Let me remind you that our God is sovereign. He's bigger than, than uh, you know, this virus and that you are as a Christian safe in his hands, whatever happens to you. Um, I think for most people, not just the physical aspects of the virus, but what it did to the world financially was perhaps an even bigger challenge and I need I wanted as a pastor to remind them God is faithful you he will take care of you even if you just lost your business or you lost your job in the middle of this like he, that didn't escape his notice he's got you in the palm of his hand and he will be with you um through a career change if that's what this virus just forced upon you
0: We are going to move into Uncharted Waters here, Um, a book that is hot off the press. You see it here. Start Here. Um, You brought it in, and and this is my own personal autographed copy, which I will read, I promise. But um, what inspired you to write? Tell us about the title and and the contents, uh, the Cliff Notes version of
1: what Start Here is all about. Sure. Well, first, thanks for allowing me to throw a curveball into this discussion tonight because, yes, you're right, that thing is two weeks old, Um, and we didn't have a chance to talk about it ahead of time. This is a result of lots of conversations with Christians that I've had who have somebody that they know that isn't a Christian and they would really like to figure out how to have some conversations with them about Jesus, but they're not really sure how to, how to do it. So the title start here is really a message for Christians. Let's say that you want to have a conversation with a friend at the gym or with a coworker. All right, here's what you do. Take them to the coffee shop, go buy them lunch, open this book up and start at chapter one. Mm -hmm. And have a conversation from chapter one of the book. When you get done with chapter one, invite them to coffee again and do chapter two. And when you get done with chapter five, there's five chapters in this book. You have just explained in very clear details the gospel. The whole second half of the book is answering more than 30 of the most often asked questions that I get about faith, about Jesus and the gospel. And I put very detailed answers in there. To tell Christians, okay, let's say you're having a conversation and they ask you a question and you're not sure how to answer it. Flip to the back of the book. Chances are that question's in there Mm -hmm. and the answer to the question is in there. And I really just want to help Christians have what I call gospel conversations with their friends or their neighbors. So this book is exclusively for that purpose. And how can folks get it? Uh, You can buy it on Amazon right now. That's the only place you can get it, but just go in there and type in Start Here Book and it'll take you directly to that book.
0: Good. I look forward to reading it. Um, Tomorrow is Good Friday. Being a pastor that has Easter coming up uh, in a few days, uh, what thoughts go through a pastor's mind when you think of probably the most important holiday in in the Christian walk?
1: Yes. Uh, This is what uh, Christians around the world refer to as Holy Week. It really is a special week for all Christians, and um, I really want Christians to grab a hold of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ tomorrow, Good Friday, and of course on Easter Sunday, um, which means we try really hard as a church to uh, stress tomorrow in our broadcasts the death of Jesus Christ, what that accomplished for us? Why would the only sinless man that's ever lived have to pay the penalty for sin? The the wages of sin is death. Why would Jesus willingly do that? Um, That's what we talk about tomorrow in our Good Friday broadcast. But hands down, the most important Christian holiday is Easter Sunday. If you were to put Fourth of July Easter and I uh, Fourth of July Christmas and New Year's together it can 't touch the theological significance of Easter and Easter says if that man came out of the tomb alive and we as Christians believe that he did, then anything is possible, then there is life after death and there is hope in the midst of your greatest problems that 's what the message of Easter is you have um and so kind to join
0: me on this Faces of Faith podcast. Who are some faces of faith that have exhibited qualities, um, uh, have shown you um, kindnesses that are sort of your heroes in the faith? Sure.
1: Um, I read a lot of great authors. I have been, uh, I have had the chance to listen to some amazing preachers, but without a doubt, the people that have had the biggest influence on me were just warriors who practiced their faith. One of them is very well known around this community, a guy by the name of Ralph Puckett, who just graciously took me in when I was a staff sergeant in the Ranger Regiment and treated me like his own family and um, just loved me and and gave me opportunities to be around him. And I had a chance to just watch him live out his faith and it really heavily impacted me. In fact, um, when it came time to retire in the back of my mind, I was thinking, God, I really want to be like Ralph Puckett one day when I'm older and later in life. I want to be making the kind of impact on warriors that he's making on me today. Um, So, God, would you allow me to just live out my faith and influence people the way that that man is doing it? Ralph,
0: also, um, he didn't just—in fact, we're we're expecting that he will be uh, the recipient of the Medal of Honor. We don't know when that might happen, but but we feel like that that uh, will happen from uh, a battle 71 years ago uh, back in 1950 in Korea. Um, but when it comes to, to thinking about him and, and his impact on you, a lot of the impact that he's had on you and other Rangers has been when he was well up in years and could have easily retired to the couch and said, I'm done. You have experience of, of trips that he has made even overseas to see troops and and inspire them based on, you know, his life.
1: Yeah, I think I can say uh, without exception, I don't know of another leader who has made more of an impact over the course of a lifetime personally than Ralph Puckett has. There are guys, you know, great generals and admirals that have had huge impact while they were serving, Mm -hmm. and then their reputation just influenced people. Ralph continued, to Colonel Puckett continued to influence people like me into his 70s, 80s and 90s and there are still guys today that are very inspired by him personally. I don't know of another warrior that you could say that about and he's touched tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of lives personally because he just devoted his life to it and I'm one of those guys privileged to have been uh, inspired by him.
0: You have had influence over others. Uh, You had personal testimony and influence uh, the morning after the battle in Mogadishu what have you seen happen in the lives of other men and other soldiers that you feel like either directly or indirectly had to do with what had happened to you and what you were
1: able to share with them Um, I am, but I am so amazed at what God has done in the warriors that survived Black Hawk down. And I don't think I've had much to do with it. Maybe had, uh, you know, very limited, um, but it has ultimately been the hand of God. But I have watched almost everybody who survived that battle, um, come to a very sincere, very devout faith in Jesus Christ, because most of us will look at each other at reunions and say, there is no explanation for why I'm here today except that God chose to spare my life. And now whatever days I have left, I'm going to devote to him. What's your favorite Bible verse? Uh, Well, I rarely ever share that one in public, but I'll tell you my second favorite Bible verse, hands down, is John chapter three, verse 30. And it is John the Baptist who says, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. What connection do you still have
0: on post and and? You were chaplain there uh, for the 75th Ranger Regiment. Do you still make trips on post and have the opportunity to interact with uh, young soldiers? And and what is your message to them?
1: Yes, I have a chance to get on Fort Benning all the time. I get on it. I I go back to Fort Benning as often as I can. I was on Fort Benning this this afternoon. Um, and there's a term in the military called gray beards. and gray beards are those old men that have gone before you. They've learned some things along the way and they're willing to take their experience. They have gray in their beards and they're willing to take some of their experience and pass it on to you so that you don't have to make the same mistakes that they made. And what I try to do on Fort Benning is to be a gray beard and make the same kind of influence on warriors today that Ralph Puckett made on me. While I was still serving.
0: Tell me about your family. We haven't talked much about Dawn and your children. You have five children, but, uh, so that folks can get a better feel for the family man, Jeff Strucker. Tell me about your, your family.
1: Dawn and I just celebrated our 30th anniversary uh, a couple of weeks ago. She is my high school sweetheart. Thank you. We have five children that are grown. Our youngest daughter still lives at home with us. Uh, She's a student, a college student here in town. Um, Two of our children are married. Um, One of them has three children, and then another one has another one on the way. So we have three grandchildren right now, and I love watching my sons and daughters become moms and dads and seeing the kind of women and men that turns them into. They're amazing uh, men and women. What do they say about
0: uh, your background and, and your Army career? Uh, how has that impacted them and how they're living out their lives?
1: Occasionally, while they were younger, I took my children with me when I was traveling and speaking. And, you know, people in the audience would would grab them and say, your dad really is a hero. And they would often say, and what I I wanted them to, to feel like is, no, he's just a regular guy. He's just my dad and i hope that if they say anything about me after i'm gone they would say he's just a regular guy who was doing his best and trying to honor jesus with his life
0: you have spent um you know the the better part of your life knowing the lord and and as you look from this point forward uh what do you hope to accomplish uh for him in the time that uh, as you as you look at jeff Struker's life from now until The Lord calls you home. Yeah,
1: I don't know when he's going to call me home. Thank you for asking this question, Phil. I just kind of made a personal decision a long time ago. Um, I think like a warrior. So one of these days I'm going to go out and I'm going to go out with a blaze of glory. But between now and then, I'm going to take as many people to heaven with me as I can. Or I'm going to make as big of a dent on hell as I can between now and the day that God calls me home. (laughs) That's spoken like a true warrior just where my heart is man what are the um
0: as you think about um the the truths that the lord has revealed to you and when that happens personally um it it it, it is very real it happens in your heart what are some of those that you feel like that that the lord has spoken to you you know directly into your has spoken into your heart that you know, might help uh, some of our listeners as they go about their daily life. Sure.
1: If I could pass on anything to your audience right now, it would be a, the Lord has showed this to me and he's reminded me over and over and over again. Cause I think I'm slow on the uptake here. So, uh, Somalia was not the first time, nor was it the last time that the Lord had to remind me, Jeff, I'm in control. Really? What he was saying is Jeff, I've got this. This is an easy thing for me to handle. So why are you so stressed out right now? And over and over and over again, I keep having to learn this this lesson from him because I get anxious and life gets really complex or there's some big challenges in front of me and I start to stress out. And then I need the Lord to remind me, Jeff, I've got this. This is easy. Why are you so stressed out about it? Because I'm more than capable of handling what's going on in your life right now. And I kind of sheepishly have to say, you're right, God, you got this. I'm not in control. You are. And I don't know why I'm so stressed out right now, but I'm just turning it all over to you because you're going to be much better at handling this than I can. Worry is is huge.
0: Um, there, Our minds are invaded from so many different directions. But that can really be a stumbling block for a lot of folks is... is taking it on yourself.
1: Yeah. Especially right now, uh, COVID has caused like a mental health. There's been a mental health shockwave or that went around the world because of this com- pandemic and people are really, really anxious, really worried. And I just want them to hear he's got this. If you're a Christian, you got nothing to worry about. He's got this.
0: Jeff, I appreciate you being here tonight. I, um, I, I, Appreciate our friendship and and the type of not only man you are, ranger you are, but the the, the man after God's own heart. I feel like that you uh, are trying to strive to do, you know, what He would have you to do, and and what a testimony for anyone who listened tonight, to have gone through what you've gone through, and to be able to help people see what the answer, you know, to fear is, and it's it's not courage necessarily, but really it's faith and. That brings us right back to the name of this podcast of Faces of Faith, and you you stand out as as an incredible face of faith. Thanks for being my guest tonight. Thanks very
1: much for having me on the show,
0: Phil. Wanted to remind folks at home that you can watch Faces of Faith stream live on WRBL.com. It happens every Thursday night right here, 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Central Time. You can watch the replay the very next day on our website. And coming soon, you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or Audible so you can listen to the show on the go. And before we go, someone that I want to give a special shout out to and a big thank you Dylan Hansen is our director of this podcast. And Dylan, uh, you are a magician, you, you make the magic happen. We thank you for uh, guiding us safely through another podcast. Thank you. And before we go, again, we want to uh, thank you for being with us here on another edition of Faces of Faith. I'm your host, Phil Scoggins, and I'll leave you with this. Whatever you are going through, remember, always keep the faith. Good night.